Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm Chris Kane, president of the Center for Global Enterprise, and this week we will be re-releasing key episodes from 2023 that we believe very topical and on the minds of you, our listeners, given the challenges confronting business leaders around the world. Today, our replay is about how regulatory AI guardrails will shape markets and impact business. You'll hear from Tom Daschle and David Beyer. It is a two-part program, and part two is a CEO guide to redefining work in the era of generative AI. You will hear from Mike Spence and Doug Haynes. We hope you enjoy the discussion and will benefit from it. Today's episode, we continue our conversation about generative AI and its potential to fundamentally change how we live and deliver economic growth. Today, we sit down with two experienced public and private sector leaders to discuss how can governments strike the important balance between supporting innovation and enacting responsible regulation so that generative AI can deliver benefits to society and minimize risks. Tom Daschle is the former U.S. Senator from South Dakota and U.S. Senate Majority and Minority Leader, and currently Chairman of the Daschle Group. And David Beyer, who is a San Francisco-based venture capitalist, a former senior executive at Amgen and Genentech, and former Chief of Domestic Policy for Vice President Al Gore. Tom and David, welcome and thank you for being with us today. There is both excitement and worry about the power of generative AI. Public officials have begun discussing what role government regulation should play in shaping its uses. We know from experience that governments and public policy can create, modify, and eliminate markets overnight if they so choose. How governments will choose to deal with generative AI will directly influence private sector decisions regarding investment and market opportunities. Already, there are calls in the U.S. to establish a new federal agency to oversee generative AI applications. New York City passed a law requiring companies to disclose the use of AI in hiring. Meanwhile, China recently published new generative AI rules and other regulatory proposals are under consideration around the globe, including in Australia, Canada, the EU, and the UK. The concept of guardrails is being used to discuss AI regulatory models the idea is that policy delineates the values society holds true, and AI uses are given direction, but not command and control regulation, creating space for AI innovation to reveal new contributions to economies and societies. Business leaders will need to participate, along with policymakers and other stakeholders, in discussions around what guardrails make the most immediate sense if countries are to hit the sweet spot of balancing innovative economic growth and responsible societal behavior. Tom, perhaps we could start with you. Uh, given your experience, in your mind, what is the best analogy for the policy changes ahead regarding generative AI? Some have suggested the analogies of nuclear energy and weapons, biotechnology, the internet. But from your experience, what are your thoughts on the policy changes that we see and, and how have we dealt with them in the past? Well, Chris, I think my best answer is all of the above and none of the above. There are certainly things we can do and learn from the past transformational developments we've experienced, the ones you've noted, 
But we should all understand that we can avoid making some of the mistakes that we made as we consider those other developments, but they may not be applicable here. AI is, is actually world altering. It's unlike anything we've ever dealt with before. Other issues like the ones you mentioned have a, have a long history, but here we're actually starting from scratch. We're not even sure which policy uh, questions we ought to be asking about right now. So we have that whole challenge, I think, as we consider AI. Rather than learning from past mistakes, I think relying too much on old models may not be particularly helpful. So as we start from scratch, when it comes to public policy, I, I think Senate Majority Leader Schumer recently laid it out about right, actually. He argues that there ought to be a, a two-part action plan. First, develop a framework, and then develop a process. And I agree with his assertion that framework should recognize at least two major goals. First, innovation has to be the North Star. The U.S., as we all know, has long been the leader of innovation. As I understand it, we had over 590,000 U.S. patents granted just in 2021 alone. And 60 of the top 100 companies worldwide uh, are still American. Secondly, he argues that guardrails are essential, and I couldn't be more emphatically in agreement. If guardrails are not in place, we actually could stifle or even halt innovation. So there seems to be a growing consensus that a good framework has four primary components. First, clearly security. We need to do everything we can to install guardrails that make sure no one uses our AI advances for illicit or bad purposes. We also have to ensure that we consider security for America's workforce. Globalization, I think, is a cautionary tale. We all know that story. Congress was way too slow, and I have to admit some guilt myself here, to aid Americans who lost their jobs due to globalization over the past decades. Well, writers, drivers, and many others could actually be next. Second, accountability. We need to ensure privacy is protected. We need to make sure that there's certain practices are out of bounds. And third, we need to protect our democratic foundations. I'm involved with a number of organizations dedicated to democracy, and the mis disinformation that we're experiencing right now is a major threat to democracy. We have to ensure that people can engage in democracy without outside influence. And finally, we need to ensure that we have explainability. That might be our our biggest challenge. And I think here, transparency is so key. We need to develop a system that is simple and understandable to the average user. Just to close on your good question, that, that policy here is essential as well. And I just, I think we need to ask four basic questions. What is the proper balance between collaboration and competition among the entities developing AI? How do federal intervention questions be considered? How do we address federal intervention? How much should there be? What is the proper balance between private AI and open AI? And how do we ensure innovation and competition is open to everyone, not just the big companies? So as we consider past experience, and the models you suggest are the ones that I think we ought to know, let's learn from our past mistakes, but then let's focus on the proper framework and process for creating a new global technological infrastructure. That's great. Thank you, Tom. There are a number of things you said that have been touched on in our two previous episodes, looking at different dimensions of generative AI. We'll come back to those later. But David, any thoughts about the analogies and policy challenges that you foresee? Yeah, thank you, Chris, and thank you for hosting the podcast. First, 
maybe I could start by laying out a definition for artificial intelligence. And this is something that I was involved in writing in 2018 for California State Commission. And we found that artificial intelligence is machine or computers that can sense, reason, act, adapt like a human being. And as Tom suggested, that's a profound technological breakthrough. And I also agree with Tom that it is useful to look at previous examples, biotechnology and the internet are things that I know reasonably well, having worked on internet policy in the Clinton White House and having been part of the biotechnology industry and government regulation of that industry for more than 20 years. And so let me focus a little bit on what we can learn from biotechnology. It's the case that both academia and the private sector engaged in pauses in research when it was appropriate to prevent uh, abuses. That kind of activity may be appropriate in the context of artificial intelligence with respect to some uses in policing, for example, or in defense context. Authorization to use weapons may need rules to prevent algorithms from acting without adequate human supervision. So I think looking at the previous case studies is useful, but it also points out a structural question. What is the appropriate role for companies, CEOs and leaders within companies? What do they need to know? When do they need to act? And how do they act relative to the government? An analogy, Chris, that you referenced is uh, nuclear power. That was largely a government-driven activity, and one could argue it was appropriate with respect to defense uses, but it may have had a stifling effect with respect to civilian energy creation. So I think there are lessons, and we shouldn't ignore those lessons as we go forward. So a, a couple of the themes that you both have touched on have given rise to points in our previous conversations. Tom, one about accountability. Second, around the access of this technology and breakthrough technology that is so different than many of the other breakthrough technologies that we have been um, linking to. For instance, in a previous episode, we had a discussion around what makes generative AI so unique and so different is because it is at the personal level. Access is from each and every individual who want, chooses to use it, where in previous technologies, there were either institutions or gatekeepers that provided access to these technologies. And there, therefore, the pace of distribution was slower because it was more limited to the number of people who were experimenting with it. I mean, even the internet as it started really wasn't fully accessed until smartphones came into being. Now, that's a long time after the internet was actually deployed because companies and institutions like government were able to be the gatekeepers in some respects. So those legal frameworks that were developed um, previously to, to deal with these breakthrough technologies that seemingly were always behind the technology advancement curve had fewer people to consider in the regulatory model. Just wondering, Tom and David, whether you think the existing legal frameworks today are sufficient to deal with the unique capabilities and characteristics of generative AI. David, maybe we could start with you and then Tom, I'll, I'll come to you. The 
blunt answer, Chris, is I don't think in the United States that we have a sufficient regulatory governance system in place. And in part, we are substantially behind other political jurisdictions. The European Union, for example, appointed an expert committee on AI, I believe, in 2017. And the parliament has just this summer come up with a pretty comprehensive framework. I'm not talking about the merits. We can talk about that later. But the fact that they've gone through and studied and educated themselves about potential uses and abuses of artificial intelligence puts them ahead in some ways in the regulatory scheme. Scientifically and technologically, I think the United States is substantially ahead of all other countries, with the exception, perhaps, of China in some respects. So I think we have a lot of work to do. I agree with Tom. Senator Schumer's framework is a good place to start. The Biden White House put out an excellent white paper. But we're just at the beginning of this process, and we need to frame the questions with greater precision and think through the applications or use cases for the application of generative AI in a variety of in industries and contexts. And until we do that hard work, it's going to be very difficult to think through exactly what the structure of a solution set looks like. Tom, thoughts? Well, Chris, I agree completely with what David has just said. This transformation is going to be bigger and broader than anything we've experienced in all of human history. So we're going to need a new regulatory framework. There's no question about that. And we ought to be taking into account what other countries are doing. David mentioned the Biden administration. I, I, I think they've got it about right. They, they actually proposed five criteria for achieving the right balance in this new regulatory framework. And I, I think it's a good start. The, the first is safe and effective system. We need to identify concerns and risks and potential impact. We should be sure that systems should be subjected to pre-deployment testing, something we don't probably do as much as we should sometimes. And they have to be designed to proactively protect you from harms stemming from unintended consequences. There should be an independent evaluation that confirms that the system is safe. So. Security is going to be a, a big component of this regulatory question, as we've already discussed. Second, we have to be aware that there is the potential for discrimination by algorithm here. The system should be used and designed to be equitable, and algorithmic uh, discrimination occurs, obviously, when automating systems lead to unjustified different treatment that disfavors some people, and we've already seen some examples of that. We've got to be ensuring that isn't going to happen as we design uh, this infrastructure. An independent evaluation is going to be critical. Third, we need to ensure data privacy. One should be protected from violations of privacy and data collection has to conform to the regional expectations. And you're going to make that a, a high priority. And fourth, let's prioritize notice and explanation. One should know that an automated system is being used. One should know how and why an outcome impacting you is determined by an automated system. And then fifth and finally, we just got to make sure that we ensure that there are human alternatives. We should be able to opt out of automated systems and we should have access to timely human consideration and fallback if an automated system fails. Those seem to me to be the sort of the criteria as we put this new framework in place. 
Uh, Tab, you talked about a period of experimentation, a, a learning process that we're going through. And I think one of the strengths from a regulatory perspective that the United States has had is that it's been perhaps more accepting of the time that it takes for experimentation to provide us with lessons of what to do from a public policy standpoint than some other jurisdictions. Some other jurisdictions just make regulatory decisions and move forward. Uh, the the areas around identification, we had a conversation the other day about tagging. And basically, to your point about opting in or out of the use of generative AI, that it's it will be really important for businesses to know where the source of the information is coming from, because you don't want to make investment decisions and operational decisions based upon bad inputs that generative AI, which is basically an aggregation mechanism, delivers to you. So the idea, your idea about having the individual know what the inputs were is equally as, as important for businesses as they adopt the tools of generative AI. So as we shift the focus maybe a little bit to the enterprise or the business usage of this powerful and provocative uh, technology, what would you each ask CEOs and business leaders listening today to do to help policymakers take the most appropriate action over the next 12 months? So, Tom, how about if we, we start with you? Well, Chris, I have a, an acronym that I like to use in questions like this. And an acronym is that uh, I would recommend to every CEO listening that he consider, he or she consider a plate of rice, R-I-C-E. Rice is my acronym. It starts with R, obviously, resilience. I, I think we can almost guarantee in these turbulent times ahead, there's going to be a lot of setbacks, mistakes, and disappointments. So we've got, to, we've got to be resilient. We've got to be able to bounce back. We're going to make mistakes. We've got to recognize that we can learn from those mistakes and move forward. Uh, but, but resilience is really going to be critical for a CEO. Secondly, the I is innovation. I've already said how much I believe it has to be the North Star. We've always benefited from innovation. We, I think we need it now more than ever. We've got to be innovative, not just in the product, but in the practice. We've got to be willing to think out of the box more than ever. So innovation is really key. Third C, my, my C is coordination. OE is going to require a tremendous amount of public-private cooperation and partnership. So coordinating at all levels, internally, externally, between private and public sectors is key. So coordination is, is absolutely imperative. And my E is engagement. This isn't a time for any CEO to be, sit back and be a spectator. Interest and involvement in public policy is absolutely critical. We need their engagement personally, corporately, and in every other way we can think of to ensure that we get the maximum degree of participation as we work through these challenging times. So, David, do you like rice? Yes. I would focus first on what technical information does a CEO need to have about artificial intelligence? And there was an article in the Stanford Business Review, which I think captures it pretty well. CEOs and boards of directors need to know enough to frame the value issues and to pose the right questions for setting safeguards. And the value issue point, I think, is important to underline. If you're going to augment human knowledge and human productivity, you need to have a human-centric way of thinking about artificial intelligence. 
that means you have to value uh, the individual, whether it's your employee, your supplier, or your customer. That means they all have to be educated about the opportunities and the risks from artificial intelligence. And people need to be trained, especially in the employment context, how to use it effectively to augment and improve their work. And lastly, one of the challenges of economic growth over the last several hundred years has been productivity gains have not been equally shared with workers. And Tom talked about that before. One of the opportunities here is to get the balance right from a CEO point of view so that employees and future employees think of this enterprise as helping them grow as human beings and advance their values and advance their economic well-being, and that it's not just an economic output of increased productivity. So, Tom, you talked about coordination. You also talked about explainability. And we seem to be living at a time where coordination is only taking place with people who you agree with. And I wonder, this clearly is not one of those topics uh, that is well-defined. And I'm, I'm wondering whether or not the public and the private sector, let's personalize it, let's say legislators in Congress or in parliaments around the world and CEOs can coordinate to a certain degree that will make this opportunity and risk explainable to people. What, what will it take to meet your explainability criteria? Because with the access being so personalized and so distributed around the world, there'll be lots of points of view, which is good for experimentation, right? And learning if people are, are open to learning. But your, the two points you've mentioned that I think link so directly and importantly together are coordination and explainability. And, and what, would, what do you see would be useful over the next 12 months or so to make progress on the explainability aspect? Well, Chris, I think the most important thing in explainability is to make sure we all are on the same page when it comes to what it is we want to explain and how we can agree on the principles of, of AI that we want as part of our message. That's the way to begin successfully getting that message out. What is it we want to share and how can we simplify that message in a way that most people can understand? I think oftentimes policymakers get all wrapped around, and I must admit my own fault here, I'm guilty of it myself. I start talking about legislation in terms of bill numbers and all the kinds of legislative rhetoric that we tend to rely upon using acronyms as, as even as I've done today, that I think sort of fall flat trying to communicate with the rest of the world or the country. And, and so I think we've got to keep it simple got to make sure we've got a consensus on what it is we're trying to explain and ensure that simplicity is repeated. One of the things that politicians oftentimes fail to do as well is, is understand the value of repetition. We've got to repeat it over and over and over again, just to make sure that it, that it actually does get the traction we want it to as, as we try to work through these elaborate and complicated challenges and explanation going forward. So, David, over the course of your sure. career, both in the public sector and the private sector, you've worked on a lot of tricky and complicated issues. So explainability was always going to be an important part of your output. Maybe talk a little bit about explainability. What were the challenges that you encountered when you were working in the private sector and biotechnology? 
that made it allowed you to become more understandable and the benefits of the breakthroughs you were working on became more evident? That's a great question, Chris. Part of it is understanding the audience. And if you're talking to CEOs and senior executives, they need to understand that the role of self-regulation, that is how companies behave between them, between one company and another company or a company and its customers, is a form of governance. And in order to do that effectively, you have to communicate why the human condition is going to be advanced by whatever you're doing. And two good examples just from uh, recent press accounts, uh, Salesforce has put out uh, some accepted uses of its technology. They call them trusted principles. I'll put out, I think yesterday, something they call a AI nutrition guide. Think of the nutrition guide in the back of a cereal box. And what those two companies are doing is they're saying, here's where our data comes from. Here's how we analyze it. Here's how we think it should be used. And here are some uses which we find unacceptable and we will not sell to you if you're going to use our technology for these purposes. And discrimination would be one, violation of human or privacy rights would be another. Setting those conditions in the commercial marketplace can be a very strong step in aiding government in understanding how much the private sector can contribute and the limitations of self-regulation. So I think explainability coming from both the creators of AI and the users of AI across multiple industries can help people be less fearful of the technology and more accepting of how it can help them in their daily lives. If we get to a situation where people are afraid of robots or self-driving cars, and we end up in a, a situation where people don't want to use that technology or want the government to ban it, uh, then I think we're going to be missing an opportunity to have dramatically improved human lives where uh, routine tasks can be done by algorithm. And the best example of that is doctors, nurses, and other health providers ought to provide care and not spend 60% of their time filling out forms on electronic health records. We all have seen countries compete and collaborate over uh, various issues uh, that have come up. And yet some uh, countries use new technologies as leverage to attract investment, but others use it as a way of slowing down their competitors when they think their particular country is, is behind. And we've talked a little bit about the positioning about generative AI today. Tom, do you think that we will see different countries collaborating or competing over generative AI and how it should be regulated? And if you do, what nations do you see as first movers or leaders in bringing forth regulatory strategies that would either help them achieve their objectives for economic development and investment or slowing down the competition? Well, I think we're likely to see both competition and cooperation, Chris. I, I don't think there's any doubt. China is probably the best example of that. We're going to have to recognize that they will continue to be a very critical competitor, but they're also, we rely on China, of course, for a lot of the resources we use for our own technological advancement. 
And so out of necessity has to be some cooperation. We've seen Russia's intervention in technology, and especially when it affects our democracy, and a lot of other examples. So you're going to continue to see this, this delicate tension between, and maybe I should say not so delicate tension sometimes between uh, competitors and, and, and those who would be interested in cooperating. I think we can look to the West and some of the Asian Pacific countries as leaders in technological innovation. There are plenty of uh, innovative approaches now being contemplated and employed, frankly. And I think that by, by and large is good. I, 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 don't, I don't think we ought to limit ourselves, however, just to countries. I, I think you're going to see private sector uh, engagement, maybe even legal and illegal, uh, with their own agendas here that are also going to have to be considered as we uh, look at the future and, and how we might look at both competition and cooperation. But it's, a, it's going to be an ever-evolving process. But I think we've got to be aware of the need to be, again, as I say, very resilient and innovative as we take on the challenges of both competition and cooperation. David, any particular countries as a business executive you would be paying attention to, given the regulatory activities that uh, countries may have, because they are going to clearly influence investment decisions and market uh, opportunities? Given limited resources, I would only focus on three. China for being less regulatory than we would likely accept as a democracy. The European Union as likely more regulatory, more, more prescriptive, and more bureaucratic than is likely to be adopted in the United States. Their current plan has a artificial intelligence office, an artificial intelligence council. It's based on a deep set of complicated hard to explain regulations and uh, prior approval for certain kinds of uh, technology to be adopted. I don't think that's a route we're likely to go down. Um, however, in the United States, I think there's a big tension, and I don't mean this in a political way, but one of the challenges is delegation of authority from Congress after it passes a law to executive branch agencies. Some people call that the deep state. In the case of artificial intelligence, detailed analysis of how AI is going to apply to food or drugs or energy is going to have to take place at the agency level. And there's no way Congress can uh, get to that level of detail. So I think in some ways, the best protection the United States has in its form of government is the multiple layers, starting with self-regulation from companies, but then states have an opportunity to regulate some things that are not central to interstate commerce. Litigation is a way of regulating conduct that's obviously used more in the United States than elsewhere. But at the federal level, just make a plug for not adopting a single overarching artificial intelligence agency. I think that would be a mistake. However, as the Biden administration points out in their white paper, coordination between different agencies in different use cases is going to require a set of principles. And the ones that Tom outlined, both from Senator Schumer and from the White House, I think are a good set of organizing principles for that kind of central regulatory coordination in the White House. Well, thank you both very much. I appreciate you sharing your ideas and thoughts. This is uh, an important factor for businesses around the world because governments do shape 
create and eliminate markets. And before we close, we always like to use the last minute or so to get your insights into one strategic thing that you believe business leaders should be putting on their radar today. And so in one word or one phrase, we call it our emerging critical issues moment. Can you tell us one issue that you think a CEO or a business leader must be putting on their radar that you see uh, coming over the horizon? And David, why don't we start with you and we'll let Tom close things out. One word would be foresight. Plan ahead as best you can because you have seen nothing yet. Chris, I would say state of our democracy. We've got to be concerned about the fragility of democracy in our country and around the world today. That affects CEOs more profoundly than they probably fully appreciate today. Two very good thoughts and, and recommendations. I want to thank you both for your time and your insights today. It's been great having you. This is a third episode that we've devoted to generative AI and its implications for our society and globe, as well as business. You've been listening to The Get, sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues. And today we sit down with two renowned business leaders to discuss how generative AI will redefine the future of work. Michael Spence, Nobel laureate, former Dean of Stanford School of Business, and author of the forthcoming book, Permacrisis, A Plan to Fix a Fractured World, and Doug Haynes, managing partner for Narayas Research Group and a former leading partner for McKinsey and Company. Mike and Doug, welcome back to The Get, and thanks for being with us today. Generative AI has broken onto the business and economic scene lately as one of the most promising and provocative technologies, perhaps in the last 15 years. As it advances, there is a lot of focus and quite honestly concern about how it will redefine the employment landscape for workers and for businesses. While new technologies and automation have traditionally over time displaced lower level jobs, many feel generative AI is quite different and that it will reshape the future of work for all workers at all levels. Knowledge and creative workers in particular stand to experience both the challenges and the opportunities. Generative AI has the potential to automate certain aspects of knowledge work, such as software development, data analysis, and content generation. But it can also empower knowledge workers by providing powerful tools to enhance their productivity, their creativity, and decision-making. CEOs and business leaders will have the opportunity, and perhaps even the obligation, to explore the potential of generative AI as a tool that can redefine and reorganize work. From understanding the technology's capabilities to addressing ethical considerations, companies will need to navigate this landscape strategically, exploring best practices for effectively deploying generative AI while ensuring a human-centric approach that values employee well-being and collaboration. Mike, perhaps we can start with you. From a macroeconomic perspective, how do you see generative AI impacting the overall economy, various sectors, the nature of work and workers themselves? Well, it's a very large question, Chris, but I'll take a shot at parts of it and Doug uh, can take over from there. Uh, to me, the revolutionary aspects of generative AI as it's emerged in the last few months, although the research was done before that, are one, it, it has this capacity for seamless domain switching, which basically no previous AIs had. 
it has enormous scope because it's trained essentially on the entire internet. And finally, it's very accessible. That is, you don't need technical training to interact with the large language models. You could just ask it a question. Maybe you can get a little better at prompts to get the response you want. To me, from a macro perspective, the, in the best case scenario, I can see generative AI providing uh, the technological underpinnings for a really powerful surge in productivity, pretty much globally. And that would be reversing two decades of declining productivity and relieving numerous supply side pressures that we're all aware of, having to do with labor shortages, supply chain disruptions of a variety of kinds, uh, aging populations, and so on. And if it does that, then it'll take away some of the supply side non-contribution to the inflationary pressures we've experiencing. Overall, it could be really quite dramatic. So why is this likely to happen? Not in the next couple of years, because we're in a period of intense experimentation and sort of innovation. And nobody I know thinks they have a complete picture of where we're going to emerge. But I think in the second half of the decade, there's a reasonable chance that we'll see these effects, if it's properly used, to enhance service quality in a wide range of sectors like healthcare and education, as well as in standard business processes, customer service, and a host of others. It will also likely increase the transparency and therefore ultimately the performance of highly complex, very complex systems that are at present impenetrable, partially opaque, like the global supply chains that CGE has studied and contributed to. So all of this will be explored in the next few years with lots of entrepreneurs. Sure, we'll have hype, we'll have excess valuations, we'll have irrational exuberance and so on. But then I think we'll start to see the things. The, the last thing I'll say by way of introduction, Chris, is we're going to see lots of different applications to this. I think the one that's most interesting is what I call the powerful digital assistant model, where the, the AIs are used mainly as a complement rather than a substitute for labor. There's a certain amount of preliminary research that suggests this. The AIs capture and encapsulate a whole lot of accumulated experience and when delivered properly to people like customer service agents, there's a leveling up effect. The least experienced get the biggest kick in terms of kind of performance. We're gonna see AIs producing first drafts of everything from doctor's reports to hospital reports to first drafts of software. Are they, is it gonna be full-throated automation? I don't think so, at least not for the foreseeable future. There'll be elements of that but I like the word first draft. I think a human's going to check it. After all, these are prediction machines. They're fallible. They make mistakes and get lost. And so I think for our executives, using these things as complements rather than substitutes for labor is going to be the sort of dominant wise, wise use of the technology. So let me stop there and turn it over to Doug. Thanks. Uh, Doug, from a macroeconomic perspective, any thoughts and reflections? Uh, I'm going to ask you about the micro uh, implications of this, because I know you work with organizations deeply and, and talk about productivity and work at the firm level, but at the macro perspective, any thoughts that add to micro or complement? The, so I think the macro and the micro actually converge here. I think what we're going to experience as a society and economy is what the companies are going to experience individually. I think it's important to start with the distinction between what generative AI is adding, because it's not a lot of people are presuming the things that they see, for example, ChatGPT doing are all related to ChatGPT. But what generative AI does 
is create a much better human interface. And that opens up access to other forms of technology, as an example, computational AI. Because a lot of people who are accessing computational AI through generative AI, through which like ChatGPT, they assume that it's all the generative AI that's doing the work, but it's not. The effect of that, though, is that the democratization of access to advanced computing technologies is going to have an effect at the companies, but it's also going to have an effect on the general economy and society. So one of the things Mike said was it has this leveling up effect. We're going to get a leveling up effect where many more of us are going to be accessing advanced computational capabilities in our day-to-day lives and in our work lives. And I do think it is potentially a big unlock for productivity in the economy generally. So access was a topic of one of our previous Get episodes on AI and the, the distinguishing factor, the historical factor that was offered was that because the access is now at the personal level and no longer just at the institutional level, the speed at which this will transform society will be dramatic, something that we yes. haven't seen before. In fact, Mike was talking about we're in a period of experimentation. You both know, and some of our listeners know, that we have a program at CGE called the African Women Entrepreneurship Cooperative. And that has 1,200 women business owners from across all 54 African countries in it. And we recently did a generative AI activity with them called the Generative AI Scavenger Hunt, where we asked them to go and search and use generative AI and apply it to their business instantaneously. And the experience was remarkable. We have a readout on that and we're happy to provide it to anybody who is interested. But the areas of graphic design, the areas of how do you make an effective query were the ones that really were quite firsthand to the women who participated in this. Doug, let me go to the micro perspective for a second. If you were still at McKinsey or leading any of the various companies that you've managed, From a CEO perspective, what would you be doing right now to understand the implications of generative AI on your organization and in particular, how work gets done? Well, the last part of your question, I think, is the most powerful. The first thing to do is to take the process of a business today, whatever that process is, whatever that business is, whatever that process is, and break it down into the series of decision steps. So as you stated in the very first minutes of this discussion today that generative AI is, look, generative AI is going to have an effect on higher end roles, on more higher educated, more advanced roles that have more training, more development, et cetera, over time. Those roles are all processes, right? A series of decisions that are linked together to lead you to a certain place. If I'm running a company of any kind, I would look at kind of our core value stream and look at those processes as they lay out and ask ourselves, where would access to more sophisticated, more powerful computational decision-making make us better? And then what I would say is if those are, you know, when I spot that place at the process at a much more granular level, that's where I'm going to do my experimentation in the company on using a generative AI application to make that technology broadly accessible. Let me use a specific example and I'll go to the investing industry. There've been a lot of articles written. In fact, there was one just a few weeks ago about using ChatGPT to pick stocks. I'm going to have the query or the prompt given to ChatGPT was construct a diversified portfolio with a high expected return, right? Took a very aggregated view, like 
let's have chat GPT replace the entire investment industry activity in one prompt. That's never going to produce anything that's particularly valuable. But here's an application I was actually talking with somebody about earlier this morning that could be really valuable. If I'm a really big investment firm, I can provide my investors, my investment professionals, let's say my analysts, with tremendous tools that make it possible for them to access all sorts of data, all sorts of publicly available information, and very quickly answer question after question about how a stock might be affected by anything from the war between Russia and the Ukraine to how inflation rates are going to change. Right? I, I can get answers in the hands of my investment professionals very quickly because if I'm a really large investment organization, I've spent millions of dollars on providing that tooling. But if I'm a mid-size investment company, investment fund, I don't have any of those tools. And what generative AI will do is essentially let that mid-size fund have the same information as the largest funds, and it will have this leveling effect, as Mike described it earlier, leveling up. I'm going to take the analysts in a mid-size fund and level them up so that they're working with the same information as the analysts in a multi-billion dollar. In every industry, that's exactly how I would be thinking about it. Mike, you advise many companies, both directly and indirectly. Where do you see companies starting the experimentation process with generative AI? And are there particular areas that you see companies flocking to first? The range of things that companies do and the potential applications of this, I find it hard to generalize about it. But let me try to respond by building a little bit on what D Doug just said. I think especially for the smaller, medium-sized firms that don't have the resources to kind of build their own computational applications, generative AI is just a wonderful kind of interface. And what, so what I see is happening is that a number of companies will look at the processes Doug described and, and see if AI, generative AI can help, but probably at least as I see it more important, what you're going to see is that the relatively small number of people who can build, have the computing power to build a, the generative AI model on the full internet are going to license it. And if things go well, they're going to license it with an API. And then a whole bunch of people are going to start building applications for specific use cases. And so yes. if I were a small and medium-sized business, in addition to just experimenting with the user interface, I'd be starting to scan and look for those people who are building the, the verticals, if you like, on top of the generative AI interface that are potential value creators in my business. At that level, it's hard to generalize because what goes on in software will be different than what goes on in customer service and a whole bunch of other applications. But I think that's an important model and policies that make sure that the steps that you need to have very broad access, lots of entrepreneurial activity, ability to license at reasonable cost, the generative AI kind of platform on which these things are built, I think it is part of the future that I hope to see. So Doug, we were uh, talking before about the differentiating characteristic of generative AI, which is now being accessed by individuals. Does that translate into businesses as well? Do you see small and medium businesses having just as much of an opportunity to advance their competency and their growth and their competitive advantage as large enterprises? The answer is not exactly. 
and the the nuance is around the application. So Mike just described a minute ago what we would call a vertical um, large language model, and a vertical large language model would be delivered by a company, right? It's usually not the user accessing the AI capability directly, but you know a company forming that has been built around solving particular problems for particular industries. So for an example, there's a uh, company out there, Jasper, that does marketing copy. It helps you write marketing copy more efficiently. Harvey is another example. It's called Harvey AI that is designed for law practices and is meant, it solves, it's built around it. It's, the prompts are very easy to use to, if I were a paralegal or if I were an early law associate, it's going to be a great research accelerator for me. There, those sort of vertical applications are going to be accessible to mid-sized companies, and there'll be a great sort of leveling between large and smaller enterprises with those vertical applications. In fact, the strength of the value proposition of those vertical application companies is that leveling, right? Leveling the playing field. There are other applications, though, that really are only going to be valuable for large companies, and this would be the bespoke models built to often to either heavily augment or replace labor. And so for an example, imagine that we're running a large retail bank and we've got frontline call center operators or frontline support desk operators in the hundreds. It is worth developing customized applications to heavily augment or even replace that labor because we have so many people in those roles that we can monetize it. But if I'm a small company and I've only got a handful of help desk operators or a handful of frontline people, the return on investment isn't there to build that bespoke application. So it's going to split a little bit based on the nature of the application. Mike also mentioned earlier what I refer to as horizontal applications, which are these co-pilot. I think you called them assistants, but some people refer to them as co-pilots. And these are tools that simply enhance my personal ability to be productive. So if I were to go back to the investment industry and look at an equity analyst, a big part of my time as an equity analyst is spent transferring information from one format into a tabular format that I can put into a model that I can do work on. Well, there's a lot of co-pilot style AI, even stuff that's available broadly today, like the new co-pilot in Microsoft Excel, that can just do that for me. And frankly, it'll do it better than I do. And it'll do it instantly and it'll do a better job of it than I would do with it. That kind of horizontal application is going to be available to almost everybody. So what I'm taking from this part of our conversation is that this is an opportunity for both large and small businesses along with large enterprises. But the approach uh, will be different based upon your own resources and the ability to understand where the pump factors are. Where the return is for you. Okay, perhaps we could talk a little bit about global adoption now and how you all see the adoption of generative AI playing out across different geographies and countries. And are there things that specific factors, Mike, maybe we can start with you, that you think will influence the outcome for how countries and companies within those countries will be able to take advantage of generative AI? There's a number of things I think that need to happen that I'd mention. One, you know, there's a lot of concern about these things. Sometimes people are afraid of jobs and whatnot. And there's a lot of experience that Doug and 
others who have had leadership positions have with basically introducing new technology that's potentially threatening. So a lot of attention is going to have to, to go into communication and being clear about what you're doing. And at a more macro level, business government and the research community need to collaborate at generating what I think of as widely accepted norms and practices with respect to the use and inappropriate uses with respect to data, which is already an issue. And eventually we'll have rules and regulations. And the trick is not to promulgate them too quickly so that you stifle the innovation process. There's another thing I think that the research community needs to guard against, but maybe the business community as well. It's what Eric Bernolson calls the Turing trap. There is a very strong tendency to measure AIs against human performance and to declare victory when they soar past human performance, whether it's image recognition or taking the, the law school LSAT tests and so on. But that mindset produces a bias and the bias it produces in the direction is automation. Once you pass the humans, then you replace them, right? And I think what Doug and I have been saying is that's not the best guess as to the right way to use AI. We can use Eric's term, the Turing trap. We need everybody to think clearly about the incentives and appropriate uses that lead us in the direction of augmentation, as opposed to focusing solely on automation. It's not to exclude partial automation and lots of applications, but th there's a real potential bias there. And the third thing I'll mention, and I'll just do it quickly, is as, repeating myself slightly, you can count on the fingers of two hands the entities that have the computing power to generate the, the large language to train them, not use it, but train them. <laughs> and so they have a collective kind of monopoly on this, and maybe there's enough competition among the mega platforms, Meta, Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera, that access is going to turn out to be just fine. But it, there's some due diligence that's needed in making sure if, if we really want the benefits we talked about before, Doug and Chris, we want to be alert to potential sort of blockage, of that, whether they're on cost or access or other things. And finally, I think McKinsey has done a numerous studies on previous rounds of digital innovation and documented very clearly that, that a typical pattern is a huge dispersion of cross companies and sectors in terms of adoption, right? So you, what, uh, tech and finance tend to get high scores and retail and healthcare get terrible scores and so on. And I think some serious business and policy kind of thinking that goes with why do we get this kind of dispersed application and can we reduce the dispersion and level up the adoption process because we all benefit in the end from that. So those are the things I'd mentioned that on a kind of short list of things, I'm sure there's many more. Great, thanks, Doug. Any uh, thoughts about specific factors that will influence outcomes that countries and governments and, and leaders in the business community ought to be thinking about in order to maximize the benefit and minimize the risks across the globe that will have access to this new promising and yet provocative well, technology? I think this is an area where governments, I'm going to come at it from a business point of view. I'll end with how governments will think about it. I think this is an area where governments are going to have very different responses around the acceptability of the use of AI by businesses to serve consumers, or maybe in some cases, businesses serving other businesses 
but governments tend to get more engaged with the relationship between businesses and consumers. And the two areas that businesses worry about, I think will play out in the form of how and whether and how the applications get regulated. The two things businesses worry about are reliability and accountability. So reliability is if I use generative AI to solve a problem, do I get the answer that I would get from an expert human user? And do I get an, do I get an answer that's grounded in fact, or is it potentially at risk of being grounded in information that the AI can't discern as being factual or not factual? And businesses worry about augmenting tasks and augmenting workflow if they can't be confident that the answers that are produced will be reliable, fact-based, will follow the pattern of expertise that they would expect. Accountability also matters. So assuming that with a human being, if somebody makes a decision and I know who made the decision, I know if something goes wrong down the road, I know how to trace that back and find that decision maker. Without some form of tagging, AI workflows, sort of the decision emerges, but then it's lost in the ether. And if I'm trying to backtrack to either, I, I might be backtracking because I'm trying to improve outcomes and I'm in a continuous learning process. I might be track, backtracking for legal liability. I might be backtracking to determine attribution so I can determine who should be promoted or how people should be rewarded. And most businesses really want AI usage to be tagged and to be tagged in a reliable way so that you can build on the decision as opposed to just have the decision appear out of thin air. The reason why I said that it's the reason why I said that this will ultimately this reliability and accountability will ultimately wash back to governments looking at regulating or uh, protecting consumers from this. The public internet right now has a certain amount of content that is generated by generative AI. Estimates are that by 2025, that could be as much as 50% of all content that's accessible online. That is going to create a lot of concern. I believe that's going to create a lot of concern on the part of governments trying to determine if their society is being systematically misinformed, right? Either misinformed by outside interests or misinformed by businesses. And we already know that governments have a lot of anxiety over the uh, access and consumption of personal information by technologies. That's an input worry. Are these businesses capturing personal information? We're about to go to an output worry on the part of governments where what are these technologies telling people? How are they guiding people's decision-making? How are they influencing the thinking and behavior of people in our country? I think that this notion of reliability and accountability of information is going to be a big deal for regulation. So the accountability point is excellent. And as you were talking, I was thinking about information that is not tagged, therefore less accountable. It's like the quintessential black box. And it, it came out, but nobody knows what went in and how the black box operated. So let me talk about, as we close, first of all, thank you both for uh, part of this conversation today. But now I'm going to have the, this will be the toughest part. At the end of every one of our episodes, we like to close the last minute or so for our listeners and offer them one strategic advice, insight to consider. And we call it, as you both know, our emerging critical issues moment. But today we're going to change it up and we're going to go right to some accountability on your part which is in one word or one phrase, if you were to advise your child or grandchild what job to pursue in a generative AI area, what would it be? So Doug, we'll start with you and then Mike will come to you. 
I would say emphasize human judgment and insight. I never change on this, Chris and Doug. I think a huge range of things that people study and become our contributors. This is consistent with what Doug said. So my advice is always do what you're passionate about. So when you get up in the morning, you're really excited about getting on with it. Great. For our listeners, you heard it here first. Tell your kids and grandkids. Mike, Doug, thank you very much for your time today and your insights. We really appreciate you being a part of the GET community and for coming back again. You've been listening to The GET, sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformational issues.